Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. This is God's holy word. Please give it your full attention. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. This is God's holy word. May God add a blessing to the reading of it. And now, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, Son, Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit, help us now. Help us now, Lord, to receive the same encouragement that the saints who first heard this letter received. When they heard again and again and again, Satan has been thrown down. Help us to rejoice with those saints and the saints of old and the saints who right now rejoice in heaven for the victory of our Christ. Give us minds to understand, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, Hands and feet that obey. I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ. Let me pray. Amen. Please be seated, saints. Saints of God, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on the Sabbath as we continue our study through the apocalypse of John Last Lord's Day, with God's help, we consider the place in the wilderness that has been prepared by God for His church. It is there, in that place that God has prepared for His people, that we learn that we fly to. We fly for joy to that place because we have been liberated from our former bondage to sin. This place prepared by God in the wilderness is a place of protection, we learned. Our souls, thanks be to God, shall never be lost. Never be lost the dragon. Even though the floods of deceit will flow from his mouth, they will never sweep us away. Because we have the mind of Christ. We know the truth. And the truth has set us free. The place prepared by God in the wilderness is a place of testing. We all know, or the wilderness is a place of testing, not the place. We all know that we believe and confess that we are tested in the wilderness. And the wilderness is is the world that we sojourn through throughout the week. But God takes us through the wilderness, not to scare us, not to break our faith, but to fortify our faith. So that our faith, more precious than gold, can be refined. It is in the place that God has prepared for us that we are refined like gold. It is here that we are perfected and made like Christ. Our faith, which is of greater worth and greater value than silver and gold, is perfected in the place that God has prepared for us in the wilderness. We are made like Christ until ultimately we are glorified with Christ. This place in the wilderness, what is it? It is a place where we are nourished, we learned. After we have been tested, we are led to an oasis prepared by God where we are nourished. What is this place in the wilderness? We all know the answer to that by now, don't we? It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, as I said last week, look around you. You're in it. You are here in the place that God has provided for you to be nourished. And it's here when we gather with the saints to meet with God that our souls are replenished. That our hope, our faith, and our love are reaffirmed 
as Christ reaffirms his love for us through the sacraments and the means of grace. Isn't that what God does for us each Lord's Day after Lord's Day, Sabbath after Sabbath? Does not Christ reaffirm his love for us when he calls us anew to come and to worship him? Saints, the call to worship is not just a reading of a book. It is the call from God to his saints. And is it not a work of grace that you are able to respond to that call? What is the grace? It is God reaffirming to you and to me once again by this call to worship that He has invited you again. In spite of all that we have thought and all that we have said and all that we have done throughout the week, God still in His mercy, week after week, calls you again, afresh, anew, to come and to worship Him. It is a a reaffirming from Christ of His love for you. You know what you've thought, you know what you've said, you know what you've done, and yet God in His mercy reaffirms His love for you when He calls you to come and to worship Him. And we say to God in this covenantal conversation, but God, all the things that I've said this week, all the things that I've thought this week, all the things that I've done this week, dear God, forgive me. And what does God do? God extends the scepter of grace and peace to you and says, come, come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy. Is God not good? Is it not wonderful that that each week God pronounces through the lips of the minister that your sins have been forgiven? They've been absolved by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Is God not good? Let me speak for myself then. I need to hear again and again and again that Christ loves me. After I have been so, sojourning through the wilderness throughout the world this week, I need a place where I can fly. Foul I, I am a sinner, to the fountain I fly. Christ is that fount of life. Foul I, to the fountain I fly. To the place where I can be told again that I am free. To the place that I can be told again that I am protected from Satan's deceptions. To the place where I can be told that though I am tired... And though I am tested, I am being made holy. The place I can come to where I can be nourished afresh. Where I can eat and drink of Christ. And He can nourish my soul. I need that. I don't know about you. But I know that I do. And thanks be to God that He has provided such a place for me and for you. You who have trusted in Christ. It is the gathering of the saints where all of those needs, all the things that I need, that you need, are provided for us here and so much more when we gather to worship God. The next verses that the Lord gives John powerfully communicate a point that has already been made or recapitulated. And it's going to be told again and again because it is as though God wants His saints to know through the lips and through the fingers, I should say, of his prophet John, for all of the saints of all time, all who would ever have ears to hear, that that God wants them to know this. Because of the male child, because of the eternal word, the eternally begotten of the Father, the Son who assumed, Son of God, who assumed our flesh, who lived, died, rose, and rose victoriously, Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, has been thrown down. God wants you and I to know that because of the person and work of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. Because of the person and work of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. Because of Christ... Satan has been thrown down. Because of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. Because of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. In the verses that we've just read five times, you think he's becoming redundant. In the the verses that we've just read, John says five times, Satan has been thrown down. Seven through twelve, five verses, Satan has been thrown down. I believe... That is the point in the verses that are before us. You all are counting them now, aren't you? Satan has been thrown down. 
it summarizes, in one way, all of the book of Revelation. Because of the victory of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. Many other things I think that we could surmise about Revelation. But among all of them, because of the victorious work of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. I need to hear that Sabbath after Sabbath. Because throughout the week, as I am sojourning throughout the wilderness, I am being afflicted by Satan. And I need to be reminded afresh, he has been thrown down. And I need the love of Christ to be affirmed to me, reaffirmed to me. That because he has loved me, that that victory is not just his, but it's also mine because I am in him. So with that, two long points and then one short point. Number one. I'm going to talk very slowly. God help me through this one, okay? Two realities happening simultaneously. Two realities happening simultaneously. This is verses, uh, I don't know, seven through uh, nine or so. Let me just read it. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This is Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. You're going to need your Bible out so that you can see what I'm talking about. We're going to be using a lot of 12 right now. Dear saints... Three times in just three three verses, John pronounces that Satan has been thrown down. Now, as we shall see um, in the two verses ahead of us, in the verses ahead of us, there is a great celebration from the people of God over Christ's victory and the defeat of Satan. It is important that we consider how this war in heaven is connected with the verses that we've already considered. They're, Verse 7 has been said by some as almost being, uh, at face value, illogical. That there is almost an illogical transition if you don't know exactly what's taking place. Upon reading of this war in the heavenlies, uh, many of you, if you come from a tradition like mine, may immediately assume that John is speaking about the time just after creation when Satan and a host of angels fell in rebellion against God. That that John is somehow... um, going all the way back to just after creation, speaking about a war in heaven, if you come from a tradition like mine. We might argue that the third of the stars that are swept away, you remember that, right? Third of the stars swept away, I think it's in verse 2 or 3, and thrown to the earth, verse 4, are speaking about a third of the angels who fell, along with Satan, in their rebellion against God. That's what John is referencing here. Now, I said I was going to slow down, didn't I? If... John was talking about Satan's initial fall, then our challenge, and it would be a challenge, would be to decipher how exactly this fits into this context. Does that make sense? We would be having to ask ourselves, okay, John, if you're talking about Satan and the angels fall just after creation, what does that have to do with what we've just been talking about? I don't believe that Satan and the other angels' rebellion against God just after creation is what is in view here. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us what he, what theologians call, here it is, a heavenly counterpart. Now, we're going to draw this out. That is, that the Lord gives John insight from two different realities that are happening at the same exact time. Now, listen to this. He gives us a reality from heaven and then to earth. And then back to heaven and then back to earth. That all of these heaven to earth realities are happening simultaneously. It's almost as if when you're watching a television show and there is something happening in one scene. Meanwhile... Something else is happening somewhere else, but it's a different scene. But they are both supposed to be happening at the same time. Does that make sense? Let me show you what I mean. Notice verse 1. The reality from heaven. 
a great sign appeared. Look at verse 1. Where? In heaven. John is given a vision of a glorious woman who is clothed with the sun, moon, and stars. We have learned that she symbolizes the church of Christ, the rights of God. In heaven, here we are, right? This perspective, in heaven, the bride of Christ is given a particular position. She's graced with protective wisdom on earth. So in heaven, she has a place of royalty. And on earth, she has a certain wisdom that will sustain her from the deception of of Satan. From the reality of heaven, the woman is a citizen of Jerusalem. She has a position of reigning with Christ from heaven. Christ who reigns over all. She has been given a royal place in heaven. Not based upon her own merits, but based upon the merits of Christ. This is where she is in heaven. But what is the reality also happening in earth? On earth, she is given wisdom, as I said, to discern truth from error. She will not be deceived. She has the mind of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, to give this um, example, that the woman, the church, has every spiritual blessing in heavenlies that benefit us also on earth. Ephesians 1, 4, chosen before the foundation of the world that he, she would be holy and blameless, in love predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will. In the heavens... The position afforded to the church is redemption, forgiveness, to know the mysteries of God being revealed. All of these things are, and so much more is given to us by Christ who works all things together after the counsel of his own will. Now, follow me, okay? All of the benefits of heaven are afforded to us here on earth. There's a heaven to earth connection happening at the same time. Let's go back to John. John gives an earthly reality of what is going on with the woman, even though she has this heavenly position. In heaven, she has the position of royalty. On earth, she's pregnant with the Savior. She's being persecuted. She cries out in longing for His arrival, the Son's arrival. And she is um, crying out with labor pains. These are both happening at the same time. She has a royal position in heaven, And while on earth, she is suffering labor pains, waiting for the deliverer to come. See what John has done? He's gone from heaven to earth. Now what does he do? He goes back to heaven. Verse 2. Then another sign appeared. Where? 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 In heaven. Verse 2. A great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his head were seven diadems. In verse 9, John identifies this dragon as the devil and Satan. He is the, listen to the language, he's the serpent of old. Who's the serpent of old? He is the serpent of old. Serpent should obviously ring a bell for us who have been in Genesis for so long. He's the serpent of old. He's the serpent, the ancient serpent, the one from the garden. Yes? Who deceived our first parents. He is Satan. Because he stands day and night to accuse the guilty of their sin. Devil means deceiver. Satan means accuser. John says that he is deceiver and accuser. He is red. He thirsts for blood. The blood of the righteous. He has false wisdom, limited power, counterfeit glory. Because of the promise of the good news that a savior will come and redeem man made in the image of God. Satan is determined to thwart the redemptive plans and purposes of God. That's what's happening in heaven. John then takes us from the scene of heaven, this red dragon, to the scene on earth. Because what does the dragon do? The dragon throws down the righteous on earth. He persecutes the righteous on earth, as it were. He tramples on the holy city, persecutes the people of God. And as he persecutes the woman, he stands over her, waiting to devour her child. He's standing over her on earth, attempting to stop the royal child from being born. Do you see this heaven and earth connection? These events are not happening in sequence. It's not one happens and then the other one happens. And then one happens and the other one happens. Rather, they are happening simultaneously all at the same time. From two different realities. 
So while the woman has this royal position on in heaven, she's being opposed on earth. While Satan stands accusing the brethren in heaven, on earth he seeks to kill them. You with me? Two realities taking place at the same taking place at the same time. Where does John go? Back to earth John goes. Satan, though he stands over the woman to present to prevent the Savior from being born, is unsuccessful. No matter how many pharaohs or no matter how many Herods are thrown in his direction, the dragon could not prevent the male child from being born. Thank you, Pastor Isaiah, for Acts chapter 13. That, I overlooked that. Satan's kingdom is about to fall because of the birth of this male child. Now, from the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3, that a seed would be born to crush the head of the serpent, to the further revealing of this promise in Psalm 2. Christ is the male child, or we could say male seed. Remember in Genesis 3, there's a male seed to be promised. In Psalm 2, the male seed is also promised, and, and more about him is told. He's the Lord's anointed. He's established as the king of Zion. He, he will reign on God's holy mountain. He's the one who reigns over all the nations and destroys or crushes, just as he would crush the serpent's head, those who oppose him like iron to pottery. Here, here's what's going on now. Follow me, okay? David looks back at the first promise. And probably many more promises of Savior in between. And then looks forward to a male child being born and gives us more insight about who and what he will be. But a verse that I overlooked, just like I did with Acts 13, was that which is found in Daniel. When Daniel is called to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel does something that I think David did. Daniel looks back at first promise of a seed who would be born of the woman. Daniel, I'm sure, looks at other promises and then even identifies David's promise, David's prophecy in, Daniel, in, in Psalm 2. Stay with me. And sees this arrival of a male child, a promised seed, who is advancing, who's getting closer, who's almost about to be born. And he sees this through Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that, that baffles him. No one can interpret it for him. And then David, uh, and then Daniel is given the interpretation by God. Here what, here's what the dream was. A dream of a single statue. That's important from where we've been. A single statue. Large and of extraordinary splendor. It has a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this giant statue made up of all of these different elements. Though they are different elements, they represent really one kingdom. It's why it's one statue. Though they are made up of different elements, they are still a part of the same kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. And their function is to oppose the woman and the seed, who Daniel sees will come and destroy, this is Daniel chapter 2 if you're wondering, who will come and destroy this one single statue. It's in Daniel 2.35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed, listen to this, all at the same time. And became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. It's like dust. They're swept away. And who has swept away all, all of these elements that are made, that, that construct this one single kingdom? Who's done this? Daniel says, he, he sees a stone struck the statue and the stone itself becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. Through this seed, or through this dream, Daniel sees the promise of the seed from Genesis. The prophecy, I'm going somewhere. The prophecy of the male child from Psalm. He sees that. 
I'm certain that Daniel probably sees, because he's a good theologian, a number of other, other things. The seed of Abraham who will bless the nation. The virgin who will be with child. Uh, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He was wounded for our sins and by his stripes we were healed. I'm sure that Daniel's seeing all of that. John now, we're skipping over. We went from Genesis to Psalm to Daniel. Now John is looking back at all of those things. Follow what I did. Promise here. David looks back and says, I see it. And here's more information about it. Promise here. Daniel looks back and says, I see it. And gives more information about it. John looks back and says, it's come. It's fulfilled. That one kingdom. Remember that? That one kingdom that is to be destroyed by, by that, that stone. He's the stone that the builders re- rejected, who has become the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Christ the Lord. He's the seed of the woman. He's the seed that blesses the nations. He's the, he's the rest giver. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the eternally begotten of the Father. He is the word who assumed our flesh. He is God. He is man. Christ is the stone from Daniel's prophecy who strikes the nations, which really represents one dark kingdom. Daniel will say in chapter 244, in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. What is this kingdom? It's the kingdom of God. All the other kingdoms, that of Rome and that of Persia and and that of Babylon, all of these other kingdoms believe that they would be the final and ultimate kingdom until ultimately they are destroyed by the one king who comes. The solid rock. The rock of our salvation. Who obliterates all other kingdoms. Who opposed the male child. Saints, what will we sing in glory? We read about it in, in Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Singular. The dark kingdom is destroyed by the kingdom of God. He has swallowed up all the other kingdoms. And this Christ has come. He is the victorious one. He's the conquering lion of Judah. By his person and work, his impeccable life, sacrificial death, laying down his life, taking it up again, and by his glorious ascension, he has defeated the one who was called devil and Satan once and for all. Because of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. The work has been accomplished. The word has become flesh full of grace and truth. And what is happening at the same time? Now, what was happening at the same time of the earthly ministry of Christ? John tells us from heaven's perspective... Okay, David saw it coming. Daniel saw it closer. Jesus was born. When Jesus was born, what was taking place in heaven? John gives us insight into that. Revelation 12, 7, there was war in heaven. And then he uses this this name, Michael. Michael and his angels were waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels. When Christ was born, because Satan could not stop the birth of the male child, he begins to wage war in heaven against God and his angels. Michael and his angels. You remember in Revelation 9, Satan is king over his angels. King of the the locusts from the abyss. John sees that when Christ is born, when Christ begins to um, perform his earthly ministry, Satan is waging war in heaven. Now, what does that war in heaven look like? This is probably a random question. What kind of weapons are they using? If any, are there? I don't know all the answers to those questions, but just in case any of you are asking that in your minds, I was thinking it too, and I don't know the answer to it. We do know that there's a war in heaven, though. As Christ is performing his earthly ministry. Now, why is Michael so important? It's the first time we've heard of Michael. Now, all of you, I'm sure, have heard of Michael the archangel, yes? He's known as the angel of war, the angel of battle. But he's also known as the angel who protects the saints. Michael is specifically important because there is another place in Scripture where 
the, the angel Michael is referenced. He's found in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 12, Michael is seen as rising up in defense of the people of God during the last days. So that everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued and not lost. Okay. John sees this prophecy of Daniel being fulfilled in two ways. During the earthly ministry of Christ, when Christ was opposed, there is a war in heaven. Michael and his angels are fighting. Now we're talking about two different realities. So then what's going on on earth? Satan is opposing Christ, the male child. How is he opposing him? Christ was pursued at birth, wasn't he? He had to flee to Egypt. Why? Because of the war in heaven, the counterpart is the war on earth. Satan is attempting to kill the child. What else tells us that there was a war in heaven that's happening on earth? Satan was tempted by who in the wilderness? Satan. I'm sorry. Christ was tempted by who in the wilderness? Satan. He is warring against him. Christ was opposed by the religious leaders. They are at war against him. Christ was betrayed by his friends. They are at war against him. On two occasions, two of his friends are said to be filled with the devil. Satan entered him. And then Satan entered him. They are at war against Christ. As there is a war in heaven taking place. Christ is afflicted in the garden. There is a war taking place. He is unjustly tried. A war taking place. Unjustly convicted and unjustly put to death. There is a war taking place in heaven that corresponds to earth. Two realities taking place at the same time. What's the result? Verse 5 and verse 8 are corresponding verses. Look at verse 5 and look at verse 8. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. What's the cor- That's on earth. What's the corresponding verse to that? And verse 8. And they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. You could say... Uh, Christ is victorious and ascended to glory. And at the same time, Satan lost the battle. He was thrown down because he was not strong enough. When Christ was crucified, Satan, I believe, most assuredly believed that he had conquered, that he had won. Christ did die. Satan must have believed that he was victorious. But maybe he didn't understand the scriptures well enough. For Jesus said in John ten fourteen, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me, I know the father and lay down my life for the sheep. He says in verse 18, no one takes my life away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Satan must not have understood what Christ was saying. That Satan didn't take his life. Christ yielded it up. In the same way that he yielded it up, he would take it up again. In the resurrection of Christ, Satan is defeated and thrown down both in heaven and on earth. Christ defeats Satan in heaven. And Christ defeats Satan on earth. These are two realities, two counterparts that are happening at the same time. It's why theologians have um, wonderfully said... That Christ comes to us without ever leaving the Father, and Christ can go to the Father without ever leaving us. There are two wonderful truths happening at the same exact time. So then, I hope that you followed all of that. But what's the result of it? Many benefits. But let's proclaim at least this one. Secondly, Because of the person and work of Christ, the dragon is thrown down. If you'd like to talk more during our break about, hopefully hopefully that made sense, but if you'd like to talk more about it, then I would love, be happy to do so. Because of the person and work of Christ, the devil and Satan are thrown down. Verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, 
Here's what probably, well, at least what I asked of myself. I'll stop assuming that you're thinking these things. What I asked of myself was, hasn't Satan already been thrown down? Now, we go back to uh, my tradition, at least, that Satan was thrown down when he rebelled against God just after creation. So, what is this being thrown down again? We've talked about this before, but we'll, we'll, we'll go over it again. Has he not already been thrown down? Yes. But was he barred from entering heaven entirely? No. Before the death, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, no, he was not barred entirely from entering into heaven. How is this so? And what was the purpose of Satan being allowed into heaven before the person and work of Christ? Well, let's, let's at least prove that, that Satan was allowed. When you think about Satan being in heaven, in the presence of God, what's one of the first places that you think of? Brother Ray said it this morning in Sabbath school. You think of Job. This is obviously after the fall. And yet, in Job chapter 1, when the sons of God come to present themselves to the Lord, Satan is among them. And God is not surprised. Go, what? Who? How did you get in here? How did you sneak? Did you jump over that? None of that is happening, right? What had he been doing before he came into the presence of God to present himself? The Lord says, where did you come from? Satan must come and give an account. That's what that is. Satan then answered the Lord, and what does he say? From roaming the earth. And walking around on it. So, Satan has been cast down. But he must go to heaven to... Give an account. He must go to heaven to present himself to God. Thrown down, yes. Roaming the earth as a lion, seeking one to devour, yes. But also, in a certain way, still granted access into the presence of God. Now, for what reason? Well, let's get this out of the way. Not for worship. Satan hasn't come to heaven to worship God. Satan believed that he should be worshipped. So he doesn't come along with the sons of God, to pay homage to God. Sons of God are the angels. He doesn't come to pay homage to God. John declares that the dragon is both the devil, deceiver, and Satan, accuser. Now, we know of his deceit. We find that in Genesis chapter 3, where he is a deceiver. He deceives our first parents into sinning against God. But accuser. Job chapter 1 and verse 8, the Lord said to Satan... Listen to what God says to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. A blameless man and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, follow. Notice how God speaks about Job. Prior to the incarnation of Christ. Job in God's estimation, as a servant of the Lord. He is blameless. He is upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. Dear saints, that is attributed to all of those. Those things are attributed to all of those who trust in Christ. So what must we then conclude about Job? That Job trusted in Christ. There is no one righteous apart from Christ. No one blameless apart from Christ. Therefore, we must conclude, because we use all of Scripture... That Job trusted in Christ. Job living before Christ. Did not even know the name of Christ. But trusted in Christ nonetheless. There is none righteous apart from Christ. That is consistent throughout all the scriptures. When Abraham believed the Lord, it was then and only then that it was considered for him, credited to him as righteousness before God. Now Job was not upright apart from Christ. But when Satan hears all of these pronouncements from God upon Job, Satan cannot understand how, how God has come to such a conclusion. Since before Christ, there was no one righteous, not even one. No one who sought after God. All of the saints prior to Christ believed upon Christ, but saw him through a glass dimly. But Christ had not yet performed his work, the work of salvation. 
There, is, there had not yet been a righteous man. So what does Satan do? He slanders God. Your, your servant. No one like him. Blameless. Upright. Fears you and turns away from evil. Blameless on what basis? He's a son of Adam. He's polluted by sin. On what basis are you calling him righteous? Satan accuses God and Job. Satan slanders the name of God and, and accuses God of being impartial. Or of being partial. You, you, you are showing favoritism to a man who does not deserve it. You are unjust. He takes the name of God in vain, accusing God of blessing a man who doesn't deserve blessings. And then he challenges the omniscience of God. Take away all the blessings. He'll curse you to his face. He says, does Job not fear you for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him in all of his house and all, and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. You've increased his lands, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. Imagine telling God something that he thinks God doesn't know. The audacity of Satan. He, he's telling God, you don't know as much as you think you know. Satan is in fact saying, I know more than you. I know Job's heart better than you do. Satan is determined to prove that Job is in fact a wretched, wretched sinner at his core. And what is he doing? What is he doing to Job? He's accusing Job of being unrighteous. He's standing there accusing Job of being unworthy of any kind of blessing that God has given to him. It's the function of Satan prior to the person and work of Christ. He stands, Revelation says, accusing the brethren day and night. He brings... Yeah, think about day and night. What, what John is communicating through day and night is endless accusations against those whom God has, has declared righteous. Mary, righteous? Do you know what kind of mouth she has? Have you... Have you seen the thoughts in her head? Have you seen the things that she's done? She's not right. She is undeserving. And listen, I, I just went on for five seconds. Day and night. Day and night. Accusing, accusing, accusing. Prior to the coming of Christ, Satan's argument against us is the same, was the same as it was against Job. Doreen, your servant. Ophelia, blameless. No one like them. On what basis? Where, where is the righteousness that you... Because God, you are holy. Where's the righteousness that you require in them? Didn't he have kind of a point? Apart from Christ, are you righteous? Apart from Christ, are you blameless? Aren't we all sinners in Adam? Haven't we all fallen short of the glory of God? Are we not all guilty and deserving of the righteous punishment of God? And, and, and if we were punished, He would commit no sin. For we are the ones deserving of punishment. Haven't we marred his holy image and polluted it by our sin? That's the, that's, that was the argument of Satan. We stand before the judge deserving of punishment. He stands as the prosecutor, as, as, as it were, calling for the judge, if he is truly righteous, to act in accordance with his holy nature. You say you're holy, then judge them. They're deserving of it. He stood before, as Pastor Isaiah mentioned last week, he stood before the, the Lord accusing Joshua the high priest for his sin represented by filthy garments, filthy rags. Joshua was indeed guilty. Joshua was born in Adam. But the Lord silences the accusations of Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Zechariah 3.2. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you, and says, 
is this, speaking of Joshua, speaking of Jerusalem, and speaking of all of those who God has chosen to be His, is this not a log snatched from the fire? What happens to logs when they are in the fire? They become ash. They burn. And God rebukes Satan and says, This one I've pulled from the fire. The angel of the Lord stands near and he commands that the filthy rags be removed and declares, the angel of the Lord declares, that Joshua's sin has been taken away. On what basis is Joshua's sin taken away? On what basis are are the filthy rags replaced with fine garments? It's on the basis of the angel of the Lord who stands near the presence of the Lord. He's the one who removes our sin, our filthy rags. He's the one who assumes our flesh and heals our weaknesses. Therefore, John can say to us, My little children, I am writing to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you know what an advocate is? An advocate is one who defends your case. Not a public defender. No, he is one who has been appointed to you in a a more special way than a public defender could ever be appointed to you. He actually cares about your case. He wants to fight for you. He has fought for you. And he has an undefeated record as an advocate. He's never lost. Satan is our prosecutor pointing the finger saying that they are guilty. They are deserving of judgment. And our advocate steps in. And what does he present to the judge in favor of our case? Revelation says, the blood of the Lamb. We overcome the accuser. We overcome the prosecutor by the blood of the Lamb. He's silenced because of the blood of the Lamb. He has no more accusations against you because of the blood of the Lamb. And because of the blood of the Lamb, Satan has been thrown down. He no longer has a word against those who have been plucked from the fire. He can say nothing. This is why Paul can say, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up over for us all. How will He not also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge to God's elect? Who will accuse you? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Who will condemn you to sit to hell any longer? Christ is He who died. And I love what Paul says. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He stands in the gap for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword... No, I am convinced that in all these things we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus who loved us and gave Himself for us. The seven churches, they were experiencing accusations, weren't they? From the vantage point of earth. They were being accused of being pagans, of not worshiping the true God, of not being uh, patriotic. Their bodies were being persecuted. It was a test of their faith. It was as though Satan has lost the battle for their soul and so he intensifies the battle for their bodies. But they needed to know that the accusations of heaven, of earth, they will not hold up in heaven. There is no longer an accuser in heaven. They were being accused here on earth. And Satan is fighting a war, but he is losing. At, he has lost that war. All of the accusations here on earth, they won't stand in the courts of heaven. You know what people have said about you. You know the accusations that they have made against you. They know, you know what they think about you. But it does not reflect what our advocate has done for us or what God thinks about you. Satan has been thrown down. Christ is our advocate with the Father. Even in our own minds, saints, when we think that we have thought thoughts, 
How did this thought get here? That, that can't be the thought of a Christian. Maybe I'm not a Christian. And we begin to condemn ourselves. Christ is your advocate. When we act sometimes in ways that are inconsistent with our faith, how could I act like that? How could I have that kind of attitude? How could I go and do that kind of thing or, or be with these kind of people? What's wrong with me? Maybe I'm not a Christian. Remember that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You have an advocate with the Father. Satan has been defeated. He's been thrown down. He's waged war because of the person and work of Christ. And because of the person and work of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. He is not strong enough. He's no longer able to have any grounds to accuse you. God calls you blameless. God calls you righteous. Me? Righteous. Satan can no longer say, no, he's not. Because you are in Christ. And Anthony, if you are in Christ, then you are blameless. Senior, if you are in Christ, then you are upright. David, if you are in Christ, then you are holy. Why? Because Christ is holy. Because Christ is blameless. Because Christ is upright. Therefore, if we are in Christ, we take on all of the virtues of Christ. You stand covered in the blood of Christ. He's been thrown down. 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 God in His grace and mercy has plucked you as logs from the fire of judgment and granted us salvation in Christ. Because Christ is victorious, so are you. Satan has been thrown down. What's the only appropriate response to this? Rejoice. For because of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. I'll read these verses and close. Verse 10 through 12. Then I heard a loud voice back to heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before before God, our God, day and night, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love, this is important, their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice heaven, and you who dwell in them, back to earth, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that his time is short. Heaven rejoices. We on earth, we do not fear death because Christ is victorious and Satan is defeated. So if death comes our way, we will not shrink back from it. Rejoice, O heavens, because Christ is victorious. O earth, we will suffer because Satan's time is short. But because his time is short, we do not have to fear the suffering. We will see in the verses to come how Satan will afflict those who are us, the saints who are left. But we must always keep at the front of our minds. He is a defeated foe. Because of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. Let us pray.